Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula, your host. Super excited that you're here. Welcome if it's your first time. I have a special episode in store for you. I am interviewing my partner, Keaho Rolfs, and this has been a long time coming because he's usually a man of few words. And this is, I got him really talking here and we go deep into his spiritual practices connecting through the Lakota tradition, how that happened for him. And he shares some wisdom around that. So I'm really excited to share that with you. In addition, he is a playwright. He's a baker, which we don't even get into. Uh, he's a farmer. He helps to regenerate our land and he's a full-time farmer. So he's uh, retired from other work. He's had a background playing the tenor saxophone, which we talk about. So we go deep and wide. And so I hope that you really enjoy this expansive interview with the love of my life and the person who I am. I'm so excited to be able to wake up next to every single day and farm this land with and care for our little doggy with. So I hope you enjoy this. Before we jump in though, I want to tell you about a really exciting opportunity to get some personalized analysis of your money karma from me. So I'm doing this I hardly ever open up to the general public the chance to get my astrological insights, but I'm offering 25 spots to get a money karma analysis. So what is this? So I've done episodes in the past and I've talked in Instagram and other places about money karma, which is our proclivities, the the kinds of opportunities and obstacles that exist in our cosmic blueprint or birth chart around money. And so when I offer these analyses, what I'm doing is going deep into what's going on in your particular chart around saving, earning, spending, and give you some in-depth knowledge about what to expect in this period. So you'll be able to ask a question. I will be giving you a detailed audio that will also provide remedies where necessary and give you insight into the six months to year ahead. This is a great way to start 2023. In addition to that, you will receive your birth chart and I will let you know about how to look at the timing in your chart to make sure you're kind of aware of what's to come and and what to be looking out for. So the bonus here is that if you are one of the 25 folks who sign up for this limited opportunity, you will also get early access to my course that comes out next month called Cosmic Cash Flow. And this is a deep dive into how we can relate to money in a more positive way to really generate the success that we want to see in our business and our life. And this comes from my hard won experience remediating my own money karma. So I've said before that, you know, my, my chart doesn't promise wealth in this time. I've done a lot to really work hard on the stories keeping me stuck, which is very much a part of this course. Understanding the planet Saturn, working with Saturn in some very specific ways, which I teach in that course. And also two of my mentors sharing their wisdom about 
money and how to relate to it from a perspective of Vedic wisdom. So if that's intriguing to you, stick around. That course will be available soon. Meanwhile, if you jump on board now, you're going to save a lot of money and get this extra bonus from me. When I offer this again with the course, it's going to be much more expensive. So check out the link in my profile, sign up. Again, it's limited to 25 folks and you will be able to get a detailed analysis of your money karma. So without further ado, I would love to share this interview with my sweetie, Keaho Rolfs. Hello, my love. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everybody. (laughs) So we're sitting here in our living room on our farm in rural Maine, got the wood stove going. We have our dog here. Anything could happen. (laughs) Um, So I thought maybe we could start by talking about how we met. Is that an okay place to start? Sure. Do you want to tell it or do you want me to tell it? (laughs) You can tell. Okay. You can fill in whatever I leave out. So a dear friend of mine, who's also a friend of yours, um, brought me to the Lakota Sundance. And before the Sundance, it's ideal, she said, to come to a work party. And so I had the opportunity to come to the work party and build teepees and sweat lodges and things like that to get ready for the ceremony, which was really powerful for me with, as a person with native background, I had never done any of that. So it was really cool. And she was introducing me to people and, um, she walked me up to you. You were standing in this ray of sunshine, holding a cup with green tea in it that had a picture of a woman on it. And I asked you about that. And you told the story about this woman that you had cared for as a CNA at a nursing home and that she had recently passed away. And I was just really touched by your story. And um, when we walked away, I asked Jesse Joe, who is that? I want to know more about him. And she said, that's the most I've ever heard him talk in 17 years. <laughs> it was a really meaningful moment for me. And we've talked about this, but did I leave anything out? No, uh, work party, that Sundance work party, what we mean by that is a weekend prior to actually coming back to the ceremony ground just to help get things ready to go, get some of the work out of the way, being the firewood and, like you say, setting up teepees and such. So after that, we had a couple more weeks, I believe, before we returned to the big gatherings of the Sundance ceremony. Yeah, obviously... uh, You made an impression on me, which was surprising. It was the last thing I was really looking for at that time. But I felt the same way. Who is that? (laughs) So I had to stay focused on the work to be done, and not only on this to prepare for ceremony, but to prepare myself. And went away for a couple of weeks and came back, and hoping I'd run into you again, which... We were able to chat in the evening sometimes and just felt so easy. Yeah, it was really sweet how it's set up because you have these camps during the ceremony and during the day, you know, the rituals are going on. And then in the evening we can sit and talk and 
there was no distractions. There's no internet. There's no phones. We're sitting there talking. We have our people around us kind of witnessing us get to know each other, which was really special. So I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the Red Road and how you came to be a part of this tradition. Red Road is a generic term that people often use. It really denotes Native American ways. That varies greatly from nation to nation as far as around the country, or how should we say, Turtle Island. Um, in my case, it's Lakota. And how I got there was the most unlikeliest of journeys that I certainly wouldn't have imagined. I, from a small town of a few hundred people in central Illinois, and uh, I, later, after we got to know each other, you kind of showed me my chart. Things made a little more sense to me, but at the, I was a kid, I was very sick, rheumatic fever, a few other diseases that kept me down. And I just remember most of my first five or six years of being alone, kind of in my room, in my bed, not allowed to do much except go to the doctor. I was able to go to school in first grade and gradually take part in more activities. And pretty common child, rear in there in the farming country. And then I went away to college and I never really felt at home there in that town. I never really knew exactly what I wanted to study, and which was a little disturbing because my parents were so happy that I had gone. I was the first one in my family to go to college, but I still didn't know who I was, where to go, what to study, what to do, and I just kind of felt lost. I seemed to be pretty good at philosophy and English, I ended up with a graduate school there in the philosophy department. But still things didn't seem right and I was trying to just follow a sign, show me a sign, where, where do I go? You were aware of that at the time, that you were looking for a sign? Good question. I don't think I had it in, defined in that way. But like anybody who felt lost, they were probably always searching for a find a way. And I was doing all right, but I, I didn't feel committed and sort of spent more and more time downtown in the bars. It's kind of the way I grew up in bars and in the pool hall. And then I think it was my third term. This would have been around 1981 or 82. Looking back now at my age and here in the middle of the winter when stories are told. There was a Native American philosophy class, which seemed even totally absurd at the time. It was the first time it was ever offered. And it didn't occur to me until years later that that's when I kind of had the, what some would call a spiritual crisis, <laughs> crisis of the spirit. And I just, overnight, I dropped out. Mm -hmm. Made a decision. I can't do this anymore. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not this. Like academics. Yeah. And after a few weeks or so, I started hitchhiking. 
hitchhiked the whole country, years off and on, just following the signs wherever they might lead. There, I had no career, no destinations. And I don't know if I was ever truly comfortable with that, but I had to adapt. And uh, I got by on doing what I knew how to do, shoot pool and bars and just sort of live among that type of lifestyle, hitchhiking around, going place to place, and ended up back in Chicago where things kind of went even more downhill, roaming the streets of the city, getting involved in the nightlife, the blues bars, bar rooms. There was a bar on every other corner. Of course, there was drugs, and the alcohol started getting the best of me, and I guess you could call it depression. Many days, sometimes I couldn't get myself off the floor. But again, these were the days, you know, before Internet and cell phones and much information about things. I never owned a TV in my life. We still don't. (laughs) So can't say that I was really informed other than books and my own intuitions and experience. So realized I I, got to do something, I'm going to die. Not that I was all that concerned about it, but I didn't. There's something more. Yeah. And I knew it would break break my mother's heart. So I said, I got to live. And um, ended up with an old truck. I remembered one night when my friend had taken me out on Lake Michigan in his dad's sailboat. We sort of absconded with it. I don't think he was supposed to do that. <laughs> but we had a beautiful sail. And I really felt good out there. Freedom was sort of been a preoccupation of my what is it here I am a, a white male in the United States in the 80s and I'm supposed to be the freest person on earth and I didn't feel like it what what is this freedom thing kind of got a whiff of it in the box cars riding the freight trains but it's like even that didn't seem right didn't seem real enough so among the if I had this crazy notion, all right, I'll go down to the coast of Carolinas and get a job on a boat. There's more desperation than anything else. And, but I got down there and was looking around. Where should I settle? Trying to follow the signs. It wasn't. A, I always seem to have a knack for I, if I belong there or not. What does that mean? Just gut instinct. Very rarely that I feel like. I'm where I belong. And I I sort of feel like that's what humans really are seeking. Do you think that's something that's going to come from the outside, though? Or is that like a misconception that we have that we're going to fit in somewhere outside of ourselves? Oh, we're always stuck with ourselves. I had a lot of practice at that. Most of this time I was alone. You know, there were relationships, but... Most of the time I was alone. So, I don't just a sense of belonging somewhere. I didn't really know what it was. Community, work, purpose, as you, as you talk about. And this, this podcast is about a lot of those years were just survival, Paula. So I was 
kind of kept going at everything I own, this couple of things in a backpack and an old truck, and I, I wandered into Savannah, Georgia. And I thought, well, I better stick it out here. I'll end up in Florida. And I didn't really want to be in Florida. I love the tourism things that are going on down there. So try to be brief. <laughs> I ended up kind of finagling a job into the local theater company, a community theater there, where I was a technical director of the theater. I built the sets and the lights. It was a little 99-seat theater. What we had, we did some good stuff, and I enjoyed that. And I thought that this was it, but it still wasn't right because something else was calling me. I didn't, still didn't know what it was. Didn't really yet. And I thought I need to be more independent. Independent, right? Free. Still working for others. You had a thing too. No no credit cards, no keys or something. What was it? When I was hobo and they have no keys, that's significant. <laughs> Many times it's late night in Chicago, you know, or late night, more like morning, early morning. It's like, what now? If you if you had that key in your pocket. Even if it's just one key, that was it. That was made all the difference. You could go somewhere and close the door and lay down. And if you didn't have it, now that's rough. So I thought to myself, you know, after a few years working for a theater, and well, how could you really be independent? And somehow, story for another day, a saxophone ended up in my hand. And once I got that thing in my hands, I didn't put it down. Yeah, there's so many pictures of you, like even in this house, we have pictures of you holding it. Like you're just sitting there. It's not even in a moment when you're playing it. It's there, (laughs) right there with you. And I have this, I always imagine you like sleeping with it next to you. It happened (laughs) for a long time. So uh, just kept playing. Again, I guess it was kind of a desperation thing. It's like, I honestly, I thought, as long as I have, I'm blowing on this horn, there's hope. There's hope that I could earn a living. It's something I really like doing and be independent and go do what I wanted. And it just felt good. And after many years of blowing and practicing and practicing and get to the point where you could really express oneself immediately. And that was close, very close to freedom. Very close. So we're getting closer to the red road. <laughs> the There's so many questions that I want to ask, but I feel Go like I want to let you tell your story. You can so, ask. I mean, I know we've talked about music and how important it was to kind of have this expression of something through you, something, you know, it's almost like divinity touching something that that felt like it was going to fill this space within you of true and utter freedom. Maybe I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right, but do you want to talk a little bit about that? Cause I think there's something about, there are a lot of musicians like John Coltrane, who I know is somebody you really admire who kind of see music making as a spiritual practice. Oh yeah. Another good question that all of it was kind of uh Spiritual practice, you know, that's why I kind of started from my childhood, where alone having that relationship with incomprehensible, many names for God. But I had that right from the beginning, and so all of it was sort of there, fortifying the whole 
seek. And the horn was the most liberating thing I'd come across. We're talking now well over 10 years or so of playing pretty much continuously. Could end up... Very quickly, I let go of the theater job. And until I could fully pay my own way with the horn, I had a part-time job as a landscaper. A friend of mine was a very renowned garden, really garden down there. They have all these courtyard gardens. It's not landscaping as much as real garden, gardening. And um, did some beautiful things. And that carried me for a couple of years until started just playing full-time down on River Street, where the tourist bars and shops are, beautiful walkway and along the river and downtown historic part of Savannah. Started getting little projects together, rock band and a jazz quartet. And another thing I did was got a poetry show. So these two men I'd met through the theater, they were poets, and so every other Friday we'd do a show at a local coffee shop, and my job was to keep it from being too boring, basically. I interludes on that I played the tenor, and the tenor, and then sometimes I'd play a flute or whatever was necessary, and the poems they'd picked out to, to perform that night. Popular little thing, and I told him, I said, I'll do this, but I have one condition, and that is that after our program, 45 minutes or an hour, we get to have an open mic. Well, I said, if you host it, and I said, sure. Because I had seen many times in my saunterings that uh, open mics can save lives. They really do. I've heard you say that about the theater, too, saving lives, community theater. People who are shy, you know, a little hurt, feel like they need to do something. Maybe they wrote a little poem. Or maybe they want to audition at a community theater and the smallest of parts can can really lift people up. And that was important to me. So um, so that was fun. Take a little break after the show. People get a glass of wine and then I'd say, oh, and I would, let's do this. And it flowed very easily. Well, one guy that kept coming every time, talking about several years, his name was Abergeny. One night after we were done, he came up to me and he said, you need to have this. He handed me a book. And it was about Native American ways. I thought, huh. Because for quite a while, a year or so or more, I kept hearing drums in in my bands. You know, I wanted to hear more drums, more drums. And we were and we should mention that your band had a Lakota name, and I still don't understand like how that came to you. That that was the coming later. Okay. At this time, not that band hadn't started yet. Maybe you found it in that book. Maybe. I don't think you ever. You've never told me how you figured that out, but there are all these little breadcrumbs. Yeah. So you got this book. Yeah, I can understand a white guy on the East Coast. I, I'd never met a Native American in my life. So you thought? Yeah. I didn't know anything much at all. But I knew that the earth was in trouble. And something was ground in me. 
But anyway, in my, in my band, it was like, we need, we need more to sound. I have to understand, you know, I'm living with sound all the time. I kept hearing this sound. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, these, again, the internet was not prominent yet. It wasn't like you could hear all the music of the world at any time. Right. Because I didn't have access to this stuff. So that night I was standing in my house that, that I had, I was renting and, um, there was an old, you remember the regular dial telephone? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a phone on the wall. And all I remember, I was standing there next to that phone. I must have just hung up or getting ready to make a call. And I had this book in my hand that he gave me. I don't even know what it was, and I don't know where it went. But I read something about the Sundance. It knocked me over. Literally, I fell on my back. Mm. Like, I have to do that. Mm. How strange is that? It's very strange, but, I mean, it's amazing to me knowing your chart. Like, I've shown your chart to Dr. Roberts Boda, and we've talked about it. The sun is such a powerful planet in your chart. You know, it's like a very unique chart around connecting to the sun and the energy of the sun. So in that way... I understand when that's you tell as, these stories. That's as good as explanation as any that I know of. It hit me, literally. I have to do that. But I just tried to forget about it, you know, like, well, that was an illusion. But by this time in my life, I knew when I was deluding myself and when I wasn't. But I still, I tried to forget about it. It's crazy. I never knew what it, really what it was, anything about Native American ways. All I knew is I kept hearing the music in my head. So... That must be where that, somewhere in there is where I, I found that word, Wakan Kiapi, and I started another group. And this group had a purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was all original music. I'm trying to round up people to be part of it. And, you know, wasn't going to be a, necessarily a, something that was go out and make money. There were nightclubs there, places to play. But we did quite a few shows, and it kept evolving. The concept I had was the whole cycle of life, the circle of life from the beginning to the end. And there was a lot of drums. Mm-hmm. I, I kept wanting more, so we had two drummers. And I, you know, and I said, stop playing the cymbals. Just hit those toms, you know. And I, I really loved those, those guys. They were great drummers. And we were doing okay, but I just, I, I don't know. I guess I was ill-equipped. Plus, you know, as always, I needed to make a living. And so after a couple of years, I decided, and you know, this again, it's not like everybody had a computer and they can make recordings. There's not a lot of recordings of any of this. Maybe some crappy cassette tape. So I got to leave. I got to go. That's I'm, what you decided? And where am I going to go? I, I literally... Got an atlas, uh-huh. laid it on my scarred old table, right? Put my finger down. Portland, Oregon. I didn't know any, much about the city. I'd wandered through that part of the country in the past. But. Didn't you know that they allowed busking or something? Or did you look that up later? Or find that out later, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I had called when I decided, I, I think that's where I should go. So I had called the city government. 
because I knew that if I show up there and I don't know anybody at all, I, I got to have to play the streets. Because mm-hmm. I, I was determined not to do anything but play the horn ever, yeah. ever again. Yeah. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> it worked for a while. <laughs> so here comes Suka. Sit on our laps. So there I am, busking a lot in Portland, trying to get little groups together. I could tell there was a lot happening in this city. I was on the street practically every day. Had a band together, and we were... I was getting by, and I moved to the southeast section of town. Had a pretty good life going. Joined the local co-op, people's co-op, and... One day there was this guy standing in there and he invited my friend and I to go to a sweat lodge. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness. So that Sunday we found ourselves in the back of a van and we were taken up to the side of Mount Hood and we went onto this wooded property and we're walking down the path And as soon as I saw that fire, I knew this is going to happen. And went into that sweat lodge, and and the flap closed, it was dark, and the song started in a drum. And I felt like for the first time in my life, I was home. So... You're in the sweat lodge and it feels like home to you. What would you say that, what did that mean to you? Tremendous comfortableness, like I had support around me. We should say to the listeners who might not be aware of this, the sweat lodge is, let's see, it's called the Anipi ceremony. It's one of the sacred ceremonies of the Lakota. A lot of indigenous cultures had something like it. It's a ceremony of purification. In this case, it's a small dome constructed out of usually willows, some kind of sapling that will bend. And there's a certain way you do these things, a certain way it's put together and songs, a lot of songs. And hot stones, and you pour water over them. Yeah. So when it's time for a, an EP, there's a sacred fire, a certain way you set it up, and you heat the stones. And uh, the lodge is covered with, in the old days, hides, these days, blankets, canvas, things like that. So it becomes dark. They say it's like being in the womb. The womb of Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. And you go into the darkness and... The intercessor pours water over the stones. Then it gets hot. In some cases it can get very hot in there. Kind of depends on what is needed that day. Every ceremony is led by the chanupa, the sacred pipe, sacred object of the Lakota people. These things are all taught to me by the man who was leading those sweat lodges and then many other elders that I had tremendous privilege to meet and be around for the last 20-some years. Well, I just kept going back, and the more I got to know 
uh, my teacher eventually told him the story about how I felt this calling, like singular and powerful calling that I've been trying to avoid, and now I, I need his help. What do I do with this? And he listened, sacrificed a lot of his time to teach me things and to prepare me. The Sundance is a commitment, a word that he used frequently. It's a deep level of commitment. But I had to do it. And I thought what would happen was I'd just go do this thing and then (laughs) move on with my life. I was a tenor saxophone player. I devoted everything of my You were committed to that, too. Yes. And now I had conflict. Mm. I didn't know it yet. And um, but the more time, see, you don't just go and do a Sundance and then it's a four-year commitment if someone accepts to be your sponsor. Well, first there's, again, more lodges and more preparation and all kinds of things to do. And Mblechea is commonly known as the vision quest. So we went out into the high desert of Oregon and did that every year. Four days in an altar with no food or water. Powerful things. But eventually it came time for me to do my first Sundance. Well, when you go as a pledge to do your first one, there comes a time where you present a chinupa. You, you, a certain way you load it with the willow bark or whatever people want to use, sacred medicine to put in the, the pipe. And you go to the intercessor of the Sundance. This is the highest ceremony of the people. It's like the New Year, right? Yeah. Usually it would happen sometime in the summer solstice, the the highest point of the the sun in the year, somewhere around there. And uh, I can't really describe that whole thing here, the whole ceremony here. But what I did feel like was pertinent for this following your path, your calling, your purpose. So the first time, and, and I went to see the intercessor of this Sundance in southern Oregon, and I presented him the pipe, and I just started to cry. I cried like I never had before or since. And he, he was looking at me. This was a native man, right? Yeah. I don't feel like I need to name names here. No. Um, I just think that's important to know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And because this is this was thought in my mind at the time. How much forgiveness mm-hmm. does it take for a full-blooded, in this case, Lakota man, who would put himself out to allow an all-nations dance? Meaning all different, people from all different backgrounds. People from all backgrounds, as long as they're prepared and Mm -hmm. they have a sponsor 
and they respect her tradition, and they're willing to make the sacrifice. After everything they've been through, they're willing to do that. I heard him say at another time, who am I to judge? Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking that. Oh, my God. Which forgiveness does that take? Mm-hmm. Now, I've had many reflections on that since. And I, I don't... About what, what all this means, and I'll continue to ponder it as long as I live. Nevertheless, there I was on that first morning, because, again, this is a four-day ceremony, and I'm not going to... Where you go without food or water, but it's a much different thing. It's the communal ceremony around the sacred tree in the Hochaka, sacred circle. And after that first year, where I was like, it was actually the second year where I was looking up the rope, the rope that connects the, the men sun dancers to the tree when you're pierced, where I saw it, the vision. There's no other words for it that I'd originally seen mm-hmm. when I'd fallen after I I have to do this. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Yeah, I was the, the view right up the rope to this colorful tree full of prayer robes. I didn't know what it was at the time, mm-hmm. and then I did. Okay, made it through with a lot of prayers and um, the grace of Walk on Tonka, the Great Spirit. And it's a good feeling. makes a person feel good. feels like beginning to know oneself and wisdom that is truly useful. Mm-hmm. For I was becoming more and more aware of the peril Mother Earth was in, as many others were. In Portland at the time, there was a lot going on. I used to play in a, or lead an open mic at a place called a place on Division Street. And there was a group of very, very brave young people called themselves the Cascadia Forest Alliance, doing tree sits around. These were intense times. This was after 2001, and there was a government out to get so-called domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm. Homeland Security and such. The gentlest people I've ever met in my life with the most conviction to help save the last of the old gross were being terrorized by the government, in my opinion. So there was a lot of of intense things happening. And there I was, starting out on my Sundance commitment, still trying to make a living playing the horn. But at Another one of the oddest things happened. I found myself, how should I say, less inspired to play the saxophone. And I didn't understand what was going on with me. Well, you were working very hard. I mean, this is the one thing you're leaving out is when you're a sun dancer. You put a lot of time. You're, in, you're not just sun dancing during the actual event. You, you're, you're preparing all year and, for the following yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of work going on. So you were probably putting in a lot of tiring labor hours. But it also kind of knocks the legs out from, I don't want to speak for others, knock the legs out from under me and to realign like you were questioning priorities? or Yeah, yeah. And again, just trying to follow the signs and follow where the truth was in myself. And being willing to like 
they say in writing, cause you're also a writer, which we haven't talked about, but like kill your darlings, you know, sometimes you write something, you fall in love with it, but it doesn't belong. <laughs> you have to take it out. You know that saying? No, I don't. Like being willing to just right. look at what you're doing and not just keep doing it. Well, there was, if it's not what you're supposed to be doing. I never did suffer. What's that expression? Suffer fools gladly. I wasn't much for bullshit. No, definitely not anymore. Everything was changing. And I was like, not. I was willing to go with it, but it, it, it shocked me, and, and and it was I had to make a living, you know. Then it's like, what am I going to do if, if I'm not a full time musician anymore? And it's it's part of reality. But I got by and um, ended up getting a part time job, which is a, working with uh, youth, trying needed. They didn't have much going on, you know, whatever they call kids that have been in a little trouble. Mm-hmm. And I had to ride it out. I had to finish my commitment to the Sundance, which I did. And just kept learning more and more as much as I could, hang around the elders as much as I could. One of my most profound teachers, he used to say, you want to learn these ways? You got to forget everything you'd ever been taught. (laughs) I started to comprehend what he was saying in the ways of how we treat the earth and the ways of how we treat each other and just in the way we see Mm -hmm. life and time. One thing you talk about a lot since I've been you know, able to sit with you in sweat lodges and things is all my relations, this, this... Concept. Yeah, very. You want to talk about that for a moment? Very good. So there's a phrase that's used frequently. Many of you probably have heard this is Metakuye Oyasin. And probably the most common translation is all my relations. Acknowledging that we are related to everything. Not just in the, the big, the small, the macro, the micro. And to live that in this culture is difficult at, at best. It's, you think you've got it, and then go down the city street for 10 minutes under the barrage of commercialism, and it's, it's kind of hard to hold on to. That's the simplest way to, to, summarize the idea. Yeah. In India, it's we are all one. Similar mm-hmm. concept. Yeah. Again, upon reflection, I, I think though, possibly the difference is from what, I, what I've learned is that the individual is still important. You're here. You have a name. Names mean things. Mm-hmm. That's my first name was changed after a vision quest. I kept my father's name, and I took my mother's maiden name as my middle name, and that way I have my name, my real name, who I am, and my mother's maiden name and my father's name, and that felt right. But, so the individual's there, 
and you know, so we're all one. But really, it's, it's the, the the emphasis is on relationship, and so that takes effort, takes an awareness of one's responsibilities, and therein lies a big difference. How one culture emphasizes rights, right. the other emphasizes relationships, responsibilities. And that's the um, great paradox that I discovered was you want to be free. The freedom appears when you fulfill commitment. Right. I'm really glad you brought this up because I wanted you to talk about this because this is something that I feel we've been talking about throughout the story is being willing to commit to things and that search for freedom. And just before we get into that, one thing that really impressed me about being a part of this community that does the Sundance, the very first day I met you, somebody, we had like a barbecue and we were standing in a circle and somebody stepped forward and said, I just want to apologize to my daughter in front of all of you for something that I said to her that hurt her feelings to about her partner who's here. So it was all in context, but I felt, wow, that's community accountability. Like mm-hmm. I've never seen it before as people being willing to be seen and to apologize to somebody in like such a public way it speaks to that responsibility we have to each other. But maybe you can talk about the freedom within commitment and what that means to you. So after my fourth year of Sundance, is like, and I've seen this in others as well, not just in myself, it's like, well, now I'm all in, you know. So the, the commitment's finished. As things go, I could just walk away and never go in another SWAT lodge or, and such. I found myself, I was on the red road. I found, you know, this is the road I walk. And it can be difficult, but... Rewarding, and, and I felt like I belong. Felt like I started to get a semblance of who I am and what my purpose was. And so I'd been trying to live those ways ever since, as, as I am meant to. So. What does that mean, as you are meant to? Well, we're here on a farm in Maine. I don't live <laughs> in South Dakota. I think that's a good transition, actually, because that's the whole thing we haven't talked about, which is how we got here. Yeah, I still want to, speaking of Dakotas, Standing Rock was an experience that needs at least a little mention. So as the years went by, I, you know, I didn't walk away. Matter of fact, I kept sun dancing. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then it started to get a little old. Physically, one gets carried away by spirit, but still, just felt like I had to keep going. And then the intercessors asked me to be a helper and such. But as as the more you do the ceremonies and the more you play with the chinupa and, and do the lodges and sing and that again that awareness of Mother Earth as a living as one living system among sorry if I'm not being very clear what I'm trying to say I had to that's what I have to pay attention to and 
by this time, the internet is, of course, their cell phones, Facebook and such, and, and so people were getting news of what was happening at Standing Rock. I knew people by this time who lived around there, and uh, so I got to go. I got. I had a job. I was a nursing assistant in a nursing home, as you mentioned, and I and. You know me, I just told the truth. I went in and told my boss, I said, this is happening. These are my relations. I got to be there. People are... Anyway. So, they didn't like me even, but they said, okay. Um, I said, I'll be back when I can. And so, I actually ended up going to Standing Rock a couple times. And I can remember many things. Nose to nose with the mercenaries. If you're going to beat and spray these unarmed women and children, you got to go through me first. But one incident that I should mention was it was a very nice, peaceful morning up on the hill, standing there with my friend. We're overlooking the, the enormous camp with the teepees and all these different people getting served meals and everybody working together. I'd been there a while and I'd Never heard a gnarly word, you know, it's just reminded me of a Sundance camp is what it reminded me of. The words of my elder came to me. He he used to say, Someday everybody's gonna know what it feels like to be an Indian. And again, at the time you don't really know what what's he saying? He was just kinda like that. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't bellowing in front of a crowd, you'd have to hear his little comments if he's hung around him. And I saw it. Whereas the machine that eats people's souls isn't going to stop just from the indigenous people. It's going to come and get these people and those people and just keep eating them. And they're going to know what it feels like. Maybe not nearly as insufferable as a genocide that they generations suffered. It's still happening to this day. But... That's the brutal side of it. There's also the beautiful side of it, which is, this is what's possible. This is the way people are supposed... Human beings, he used to say, keep at it, maybe someday you'll be a human being. That's how I ended up there that day at the work party, where you walked up to me. <laughs> We're coming full circle. Yeah, circle, of course. Of course we are. Well, yeah. I, I think it's important to talk about, because throughout the stories that you've told, you really have relied on your intuition. And I think that's one thing that we really have in common. And coming to this farm was a huge leap for both of us. Yeah. I mean, I know a couple people in Maine. We knew Maine was a friendly place for agriculture and that there was good land here that we could afford. But making that leap, it just happened so smoothly, wouldn't you say? Like all the pieces kind of came together and we had to pay attention to that. Yeah. Impossibly easy. I mean, it's not been easy. We should clarify, like we live in an old farmhouse from 1890 on a piece of land that needed a lot of love. Oh, it's a lot of work here, but I meant the the transition from where we were to get here and to actually buy property. I mean, it was was miraculously uncomplicated. Right. To get here. And then the real work start. 
felt like the land and the house sighed when we got here and there was a lot of things that needed to be attended to. And yeah. So, you know, just knowing your chart as well for folks that are interested in the astrology is you're in your Saturn period and it's your Saturn's in the fourth. And the fourth is the house of taking care of land, of ancestors, clearing personal karmas, and also juice and personal vitality. So Saturn in the fourth will cause you to run your vitality down if you're not careful. These are discussions we have a lot. We're glad we have a winter so that there's some time to rest and recuperate, but it's been a lot. And maybe you can talk about like tending to land and why that's important to you. We've touched a little bit on environmental concerns, but like I think we're both, I'm not going to speak for you. I feel like I am living my activism by tending to this piece of land, and the possibilities are endless for what we could do. We could create a refuge for people to spend time here in sacred community. We can give this land back since we don't have children to the tribe that owned this or that stewarded this before it was taken from them. You know, it just feels like a radical act instead of just protesting or, you know, voting. Both are essential. I think, um, I just got a great deal of respect for the people who get out there and on the front lines and stay there more than I can say. And the people who get involved with what they can to keep a democracy happening, real democracy. Yeah, I continue to be baffled by where the corruption that happens. But here in Maine, it turns out, and we didn't know this when we came, really, at least. Uh, not to the degree that is here, is it? The, the idea of living off the land in the homestead situation has never left here, seems like. We're in a, so we're, we are among hundreds, maybe thousands of others who have been doing this for many generations in a pretty healthy way. And so in that way, I have a lot to learn. There are people here to help me learn it. And... Yeah, there's a lot of cleaning up, and there's a lot of getting back to the natural way. Another one of my elders didn't really like the term red road, even just call it the natural way. So there's, there is a correlation there between organic, small-scale farms and the natural way. We approach Wopila farm. Wopila means it's... One of the terms for thank you in Lakota, it's um, sort of like the great, big, joyous thank you, let's party, <laughs> celebrate, you know, that kind of a thank you. So it's, there was never any question that's the name of this, of our farm. We look at it as ceremonial ground. What's that mean? Walk on it in a sacred way as best we can. Absolutely no drugs, alcohol, or abusive-type behavior to others or ourselves. No chemicals in the soil. The soil is treated like a relative. And I'm learning so much about what actually is goes into the soil and how to regenerate the soil. You were doing no-till. We adopted no-till methods. And really one of the first things that I did when we got here 
And this farm had been farm had been abused and neglected for quite a while. Because it's a big farm, you know, it's a lot of work. 160 acres. So I went out into the middle, what I could, as far as I could perceive, was the middle of the land, and sat down and asked it, "What do you need? What can I do for you?" I was taught that's what a Sundancer does. They show up, say, "What needs doing? How can I help?" You ever watch? Say there's a situation where there's a job needs doing and there's people kind of avoiding it. You can see this on an individual scale of a young, say a young teenager. The ones who avoid work aren't as happy as the ones that just jump in. Same way, the first one in line to volunteer, usually the happiest. It's an odd thing to see. So you just, what needs doing? How can I help? And I, I just... From that day forward, I, I would just keep trying to have a relationship with the land. We put, we did a lot of cleaning up. We did a lot of plant and fruit trees, regenerating the gardens. Taking a well, putting solar panels. <laughs> yeah. It's a privilege mm. to do this with you. I couldn't do it without you, and you couldn't do it without me, and that's what's so magical. So we both have this dream of having a farm, and now we get to do it because we're together. We're vegetarians, so we don't do any hunting, but there's still some gathering we can wildcraft as well as cultivate. You hear sometimes people say, well, what do you grow? I don't grow anything. Nature grows it. There's a lot growing here, though. We have a lot of perennials and well, fruit. What we do is cultivate it. Mm-hmm. Tend it, making that relationship with the nature. The sea. I like living by the seasons again, and uh, life takes you in a direction that you you were blind. At least I was before. And this doesn't mean it's the end all. Who knows? Maybe there's more turns and curves to take. The freedom in that comes with the commitments made. So I have a couple rapid fires for you if you're open to that. Sure. So the first one is, what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Go beyond. I, there was an elder I loved and respected very much. And if during a ceremony I was having a hard time in a really hot lodge or maybe on the third or fourth day of a Sundance when the body starts to wear out, he would come up beside me. And he'd say, go beyond, grandson. Go beyond. So when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? Be still and breathe. (laughs) I know that to be true for sure. (laughs) Well, air is our first medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, they have the fire and the earth and the and the air, and of course the water. I'm sure your listeners are already realize that medicine isn't just something we get out of a bottle at the drugstore. Medicine, I believe, is everything that, that we perceive and take into our bodies, whether it be through our mouths or what we see, what we hear. And in that way, it can all be medicine, another important reason why we need to be aware of our environment. 
So what is your favorite hot beverage? Well, if we happen to be at an honest-to-goodness coffee shop, I do enjoy a nice coconut milk cortado. Yeah. <laughs> We're big hot beverage fans in this household. Um, so what would be your last meal on earth? Something straight from the garden. Mm-hmm. Just walk out there and pull up a carrot, pick an apple, a plum. Mm. Yeah, one thing that I noticed when we moved into this house and we started growing our own food is that I was making the same food and you'd be like, this is so good. And it just made such a difference to have fresh food. Fresh food from good soil. So I know the answer to this, but do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? Waking up with you. Oh gosh, I've got to stop <laughs> asking this question because everyone seems to say waking up. <laughs> um, it's essential for me to go outside every morning and greet the sun when the sun is coming up, sing a song to the rising sun. Tell us about a person who inspires you and why. Oh, there are so many. The tamarack tree out there by the driveway we look at every day inspires me. That's not a person, though. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would know um, Winona LaDuc, Bill McKibben. But really, I think to be sincere, the person that I continuously get inspiration from most profound way is... Um, Carl Alenda. Mm-hmm. He died in 78, I believe. I could be wrong about that. But um, he was the famous high-wire walker, of course. And he, after he and his family were done with the circus, he went on and basically created the, what he called the skywalk. And his team would put a cable across these... Just unimaginable and abysses mm. and do it. The canyon was Tallulah Gorge in North Georgia. Actually, I was able to go there. Kind of started my interest in him and what he did. My friend was from the area and actually knew where it happened. And we parked a car on the side of the road and I went walking through these weeds and I remember it so distinctly, came across this big rusty iron thing, and it was the anchor where they had put the cable on one side. And I stood there, and I looked across right where he walked, and it stuck with me to this very day. So I researched and did some... And I still have the images stuck in my mind. Actually, a photograph is right in the other room on the wall of him doing a headstand in the middle of this canyon on that cable. And, okay, so why does that inspire me so much? Emotionally, you can't really just explain, but, well, he, of course, never used a net. Out there would be impossible. So somebody to do that, you need to be flawless or you're dead. And the clear, pure 
metaphor of that, I find to be an inspiration. Yeah, of all the people you'd think that I would say, it's actually <laughs> Carl Walenda. Wonder. It's like a kind of inspir- inspiration and wonder, too, from that act. Yeah. It's so absurd and yet singular. You know, he went out there, did many of those skywalks before, eventually fell. And died, right? Yeah, San Juan, Puerto Rico. The wind, the wind whipped the cable a little bit too much for him on that day. So tell us something that people don't know about you. (laughs) Help me out with this one. Um, Hmm... I know so much about you. I don't know what people would not know. Hmm? Well, we talked about the theater. Oh, yeah. So you are a playwright. We didn't even talk about that in this. What I, yeah, I mentioned when I worked for the theater. What I love about the theater is um, it's live. It's uh, 3D. It's It's immediate. It's, it's, of course, a lot like music where you practice and practice and practice, but then you just go do it. And there's always little improvisations and twists and turns. And, but especially in the theater, um, seems to me that in some, it must have evolved from ceremony. In the old days, the ceremony was a, the public, communal, meaningful, special event. And probably the performance part of it gradually turned into, in this commercial culture, as entertainment. But it can be so, so much more than that. And um, when the saxophone was put down for good... The writing of plays just sort of happened spontaneously for me. And I stay with it, and yet... You're a farmer. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a certain amount of um, time necessary for anything like that, of course. And one thing I acquired from the Sundance is, is realizing that One's individual ambitions are are not um, are not the ultimate thing. I have obligations, and if I have time to write, that's a great privilege and a pleasure. But um, if it doesn't happen, that's okay. So, what are you reading right now, or what would you suggest people to read? That book right there on the table, the Overstory. Richard Powers is is a novel that I recommend people please read or have a go at it. Why do you love it so much? He basically finished it and started it again when I thought I was going to get to read it. Yeah, that's the first book in quite a long time, probably not since Under the Volcano, that um, I finished the last page and went right back to the first and started over. Uh, well, first of all, it's beautiful prose. 
that's uh, necessary for me to keep going and um, appreciate the profoundly poetic structure of sentences and paragraphs. And um, so well-crafted, they don't even realize that it's it's done that way. Um, that several characters, the plot basically is several different characters from different backgrounds and yet contemporary of each other. Probably took basically in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s of, of this United States, how each person came upon their own awareness and relationship with trees. Of course, the larger ramifications of that with um, global warming and the uh, imminent problems of our environment. And so these different people, in, in their own unique way, how the forest and the trees, and they begin to see and participate in respecting it. The overstory. So we'll put that in the show notes for people who want to check that out. And so the last question is, what is one thing that's bringing you joy right now in your life? Being here on the farm and living with the seasons again, and uh, it's the privilege of, of knowing that and living it day by day that all life comes from Mother Earth. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect soon on a future episode.